poet Patrick Davidson Roberts. Enjoy. This first poem's called Hypatia of Alexandria. Um, Hypatia of Alexandria was an astronomer who worked out um, centuries before anybody else did that uh, we traveled around the sun in an elliptical circuit. Um, and like many great women, she's not really remembered. And the thing that she is remembered for is the manner of her murder. Um, I've been trying to write a poem about this for years and have kept getting distracted by the murder. Um, however, the dedicatee of this poem uh, gave me a decent nudge uh, into just actually writing the poem itself. So, Hypatia of Alexandria for Yvonne Reddick. In my telling, she is standing as she might have chosen on the sand beside the sea, with that tip of her right index finger pressed to that of its neighbouring thumb, and that scope held up to her eye with the stars beyond, contained within. And while she knows that so much lies therein that cannot be so simply caught, she is happy that at least as much as she has worked out works is there right now. In my telling, though she would not have known it, there's a quiet parallel between what she is doing and what, a small way off, Sigurd would do when asked. He held a solar stone up to the dark and was able to locate the sun. And while, for both, violence was a little way off, the sky and all its education was enough for the moments concerned. In my telling, she turns her lens and narrows an eye, and perhaps sees raging men, and the rim of her fingers turns bloody and dark, and the sky disappears. In my telling, she is still on the shore, and the ellipsis that would not kill Copernicus, nor butcher Galileo, is in the imperfect ring that she has made with our fingers. And if she thinks of the burning library, it is as nothing to this. In my telling, she has seen the route, and as she leaves the beach, there is only what she alone can, can assess, and what we have remembered, that one day would be termed in a blade of grass, though she smiles that now it is in her hand. In putting together this week's show, I reached out to the co-host, in Nietzsche's uber-poet Fran Locke for her recommendations, and this is what she sent, the work of Patrick Davidson Roberts. There were other poets that I was looking for, looking to hear from, and this is what she sent me. She's a freaking doctor of poetry, for crying out loud, and this was my cure this week. Just listen to what pa Patrick has to say in his poems. From his book, the Mains is the debut collection of poems from Patrick Davidson Roberts. In the book, Roberts creates a world of doppelgangers and possession, darkness and division, where themes of isolation and self-destruction are interrogated to their bone-chilling ends, drawing on influences as diverse as Francis Bacon, Trent Reznor, and James Wright. The split forms used in this collection allow Roberts to showcase his sense of crescendo and control. The Mains is an arresting, assured first collection in which Robert's language and imagery take readers to the brink while offering no solace. And from Fran, 
This is a resonant and necessary collection. The language is sharp, exact, and in places acutely unconsoled. It is haunting, spiritually probing, and brave with a rigorous rather than a reckless bravery. You read it wrapped and only afterwards realize you have been holding your breath. Franlock. Enjoy. This poem is about, um, I mean, superficially it's about scars, but then I suppose scars are a bit superficial, um, literally. Um, but like most paths, they uh, lead us somewhere else, and it's it's interesting when you're surprised by things that you, you think are part of you. The Trail Lifting one arm once toweling off is done with. The stark flesh newly brought up sparkles, and not a nick from the blade. I cannot help but notice, though, that one old curve of raised white arching in from my back. Shaving raises all manner of dead in gone-up flesh below the hair, but some still grab you. There are scars that we don't recall. How can you not remember? He'd laughed nervously that once, as I'd raised my arms above my head after, and he'd seen it. I think I was going up behind my shoulder with a longer blade that time. This reply did more to unsettle him than my silence had before. In fairness to him, there are scars on my back that I've never seen, and which were done by other people, and which I swallowed for years. In front of the mirror now, though, I'm not sure if this is one of them, or if I told the truth. The ones in front might as well be brands. I mean, with some I could give you dates and times, knives, even wise. But this way, like, I'm not so sure. The other side's fine, I check. I pulled him a little closer as we'd slept then, happy that he'd got off. The next morning, neither before nor after, he'd moaned that maybe it's the scar that time won't heal, in an odd choice of words for what we were at as he said them. Still, it was poetry. It's sealed. And I'd not the words then to tell him, as I think that I have now, that scars are the healing of time. They just come with a receipt. Dressed as myself, after all these years, the scars are counterpoint to the tighter jeans, the snugger top the sports bar, and these eyes. He might just have had a point, mind, I reflected later, as in the shower I inspected the mess of skin across my stomach. You see, or would, if I let many more do so, there are marks, and there are markings. There are the specific reliefs of horror, and then there are its wanderings that speak more of wildernesses, white winds and a lack of shelter. These definitive slits and ridges that I bear beneath the safer blade are signatures of a type that I never intended to heal like this and expected to carry in shame from the moment that they got in. The messes on my back from others or those that I don't remember, they're the blank marks in archaeology, too vague to be termed ritual but present nonetheless. The unwelcome mark or unseen scar at every heel, something like that which scares me more than him. This evening I got in, undressed and checked again. That white smile curling out from my armpit has set me off once more on the trail. Lying in bed, I feel it lead me past the last watchtowers into woodland, the stars scraping by above and the old sound of pain somewhere ahead. Thanks. I'd assumed this poem to be about the near-universal fear of dentistry, um, 
but I realized it was about a far more personal fear. It's called The Oral Fix. Halfway through, or so I hope, I recross my arms and move my other hand to grip the other wrist. The blood rushes back, which I hope that she doesn't spot. She notices something, though, and asks if I'm okay. Seeing very little point in the radioactive afterlife of to toxic masculinity, if I can't use it to lie to someone about how much they are hurting me, I nod with my eyes and affect a calm not reflected in the rest of my pose. In fairness to her, she's not causing anything bad directly. The pain that is coursing through me so, like the bad doses of junk that kept me from the dentist for the time that they did, is to do with the fact that anyone at all is touching me when my mouth is open. A year and a half ago, having been driven to make a dental appointment for the first time in years by my mother's comments, I'd done so with the expectation that, the best part of two decades having been spent feeding only my worst interests, pretty much everything was going to be dragged out. Lying back that time, I'd more or less resigned myself to wholesale uprooting and committed removal, and when she started the inspection, I'd accepted the incoming damage ahead. I wouldn't have minded her touching me, then, as long as it was purely to rip stuff out and cause me the deep and lingering pain that people like her can do. As it was, my younger years avoiding, or not being allowed, which become the same thing, anything sweet and most things sugar, had carried my teeth through later years of neglect. Even the one feeling that I have is to do with a smack in the mouth in my teens, which I have stopped telling people about, having realised that fights aren't as sexy to bring up as I had spent years assuming. Now here am I crossed and recrossing myself, and realising that I may have arrived at an age where the violence is lessening, both in me and in those around me, but that I have become increasingly terrified of people touching me at all, even when its fix is spitting, and that, no, I am not going to clarify who is doing what to whom. We passed that point a while back. This poem uh, was prompted by um, just watching, you know, another film um, set in either ancient Greece or Rome, I forget which, where uh, during a ritual there's a lot of sort of waving smoke around, much in the way that, um, you know, um, high church um, worship uses incense and frankincense in the Christian faith. And I realized that um, this idea of cloaking something in either the smell or sight of smoke is... Um, is something that we can do on a personal level, or at least I have done. <coughs> the trick. The trick I developed years ago was that on my evening walk, a habit that long preceded him, but which the circumstances of our relationship greatly enhanced the need for, I'd smoke at least two to each can that I drank, reasoning that his insistence on my Listerine shot once back in the flat was better than the alternative of him twigging the smell of harder stuff and having to ask if it was really that bad, did I need to drink that much, before we spent the evening together. Scent not being water, though, nor a time machine or a good night's sleep, I'm pretty sure that after a while he realised me to be drunk, but reasoned, as he once delicately, well, kind of, put it, that I'm obviously one of those guys who gets a bit high from nicotine. Granted, we both knew that I've been smoking since 11, and also that I'm definitely not one of those guys, but I appreciated his effort. It's why we parted so calmly, or was at least one of the reasons. 
Six years on, and living with her, I ran into an obstacle. Does the trick work when your partner smokes, too? Not only a smoker, but like me, then partial to enough coke that our senses of smell never existed, really, as part of that relationship. We had only our eyes, but fortunately we were open enough with one another that I could, could drink that amount in front of her and not worry. She already knew that it was really that bad. This openness was probably the reason that I took the trick to its logical extreme. Meeting up one Christmas Eve with her for a heavy yank brunch in a Soho whiskey joint, I'd smoked the best part of a packet beforehand, having woken up, and not for the first time, in the arms of someone else. Alcohol being one thing, but a lover being another, I set to the Benson and Hedges with a passion like few before. I'd got to this place before her, Jackson and Rye, remember them, and realised, seven cigarettes in, that the woman in question didn't actually wear perfume, which oddly made it worse. Could the trick dispel the scent of love, mine, not the absence of hers? No matter the acrid waste on my tongue, I felt my whole self to sweat of the night before, the taste of that woman on me, and the scented weight of her conversation like tear gas or pepper spray. Hence the double Bloody Mary, hence the Jack and Ginger, the slippery slope of the upgraded trick that was trying to cover the smell of the cover, and also because living your life like this, I've discovered, is a fucking good reason to drink. You'll have guessed that the old food-turned-to-ash-in-my-mouth thing doesn't work when you've basically washed in an ashtray before getting to the table. After time, everything's ash. Years later, now friends, she remarks fairly often that she's surprised at my smoking. You don't really smoke. And while I know that it's meant from her as a snipe about me lacking the talk, let alone the walk, and anyway, in my thirties, how long can I carry on doing this, and who did I think was taken in by the trick to start with, I like to think that she means that I didn't need all this. She knew about the trick. <laughs>